Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hello, Sean and Stuart. Great to be in conversation with you guys this week. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be talk to you guys. Wow, it was a juicy week for uh, uh, our purposes. We like on this podcast to try to cover as best we can the the machinations, the twists and turns of the conservative uh, leadership race. So we got a a slew of reports from the campaigns about membership sold. Uh, Stuart, you had a helpful write-up, as we do every Friday in the Hub, on the latest twists and turns uh, in the campaign. So why don't you just set the stage for us here. Remind us, what are the numbers uh, that the different campaigns have reported, and what happens next? Yeah, so this is the phase that gets really annoying for reporters and observers because there's a lot of interest for campaigns in juicing their claims of how many members they have. So let's just state off the top that this is unverified and um, we don't know. The party's going to go through the process of verifying all these memberships. And then um, once they manage to get through more than 600,000 membership forms with photocopied driver's licenses to verify that they're all okay, um, then we'll know for sure. Um, we're expecting that probably in mid to late July, maybe longer, depending if anything goes wrong. Um, but the top line numbers are um, just what I said: more than four hundred, more more than six hundred thousand uh, potential members sold through that process. And uh, the Pierre Polyev campaign is um, claiming something approaching three hundred and twenty thousand uh, memberships. So. That is a lot. <laughs> That's a huge amount of memberships. And the Patrick Brown campaign, they're claiming something in the order of about 100, 150,000 memberships. The Sheree campaign is not actually saying. They said tens of thousands of memberships. And they very specifically said that they have a path to win via the points system, which is not it's not a hubristic statement <laughs> of uh, intention here. Uh, that means that they're hoping that something happens uh, on the balloting. Um, so, you know, it actually turned out, I think, mostly what people expected. We'll see if the brown numbers actually bear out, because um, that was a little higher than I think I expected. Um, but the key number here is that those numbers, the raw numbers, before we get into the points, suggest that Pierre Polyev is in a good spot, and there's even the potential of a first ballot victory for him. So, Sean, I want to hear from you because you've, um, yeah, you've been part of uh, part of this political movement for a while. Uh, you've gone through a series of leadership campaigns as a as a member of the party. So, so big, big number here. You know, probably six hundred thousand strong membership by the time this contest is decided. What do you make of that? Is this a is this a signal moment for? 
organized conservative politics in Canada? Are we seeing some kind of broader sea change in the electorate that might make one optimistic about the conservative cause and its ability to win at the ballot box come the next federal election? I think there's something to that, uh, Roger. You know, Stuart just outlined um, the, the magnitude of, of the, the party membership now and the claims being made by the, the, the different candidates. Even if you account for some hyperbole, it, it's still pretty extraordinary. Just to put it in context for listeners, when Andrew Scheer uh, won the party leadership um, uh, in the aftermath of, uh, of Stephen Harper's uh, term as party leader, he sold about 10,000 memberships during that process. So we're talking magnitude larger, which speaks, I think, both to the kind of energy um, within uh, the party and the Canadian public, and uh, the kind of sophistication and organization of some of these different campaigns. Um, um, you know, there's a sign, I think, that whoever wins the leadership is going to uh, in modernize and improve um, party operations, which have been, by all accounts, um, a source of competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis uh, -vis the liberals um, over the past couple election cycles. So I guess that's a long way of saying, I think, yes, it does signal a, a kind of a, a degree of energy that we haven't seen in a long time, on one hand, and a level of sophistication, both which bode well uh, for the Conservative Party. Let's take a quick dive, uh, Stuart and Sean, into bo both of the you know frontrunner campaigns at this point, which look like obviously Pierre Paglia, but also you know Patrick Brown surprising here with reports. Again, this is all unverified, but reports of 150,000 memberships sold. So, starting with Paglia, what Stuart do you think he has to do? Uh, what is the kind of the challenge? Both maybe explain for us a little bit more of this point system because. It is interesting how it will force um, the next few months really into a truly national campaign to the credit of the party. The way you get elected is you gotta, you gotta have numbers that work on a truly national basis to succeed, not just in areas where you might naturally have strength, Pierre Polyev in Western Canada, but he's gotta do well out East. He's gotta find a path in Quebec. You know, to what extent maybe is this more challenging for Polyev than we might be assuming based on this very high membership number that, that he's come in with over 300,000 new members enrolled in the party? Yeah, so this is, it gets a little um, finicky here for him where, you know, those numbers, this is the classic problem with the Conservative Party running up numbers in Alberta and, you know, not seeing gains from it. But the way the point system works is there's a maximum 100 points for each riding. And so that means that um, if you get a thousand people in an Alberta riding, then you're still getting a hundred points, whether it's 101 people or a thousand people. Is it true that I, if, if let's say I'm in that hypothetical Alberta riding and there's a thousand members and a thousand people vote and I'm 300 of them vote for me, I get 30 of the hundred points. Uh, do I have a run? Yeah. So that, it's each riding is assigned a hundred points and then the proportion of the vote is within that 100 points. So, um, you know, the writings are all the same. And that means that if you're like Pierre Polyev and you have 23% of your vote coming from Alberta, that's great. I mean, the thing about Polyev, this whole campaign has been 
Um, he's had these massive rallies and we've said, we've said little concerns about the rallies. Are they going to bring people out? But really overall, Polyev should just be happy he's having massive rallies because that's a good thing no matter how you look at it. And I would say it's the same with this um, membership sign-up situation where there are some proportional troubles for Polyev where Ontario and Alberta are going to be big for him. And then, you know, Quebec, maybe not quite so good. Um, but if you look at previous races, the variance between the uh, points and the vote share it isn't huge. So um, really what it comes down to is getting a lot of votes is good. Um, and then you do lose some efficiency when you do what Polyev did, which is you have these massive uh, vote run-ups in places like Alberta. So Sean, I want to come to you again. I'm just, I want to give our listeners here a bit of the benefit of the minutiae. I, I believe that in order to actually vote, you're, you're going to have to prove your identification by photocopying, like physically photocopying on a piece of paper your driver's license and sending it into the party to then have it verified. And I, I'm just like, again, this seems like so 19th century. <laughs> um, but what does that do, Sean? It, it says, suggests to me that there's a lot of friction here in voting. And I wonder if that doesn't benefit Polyev to some extent, because you are going to need people to effectively crawl over, you know, broken glass here in terms of finding a photocopier, getting their driver's license out, going through this elaborate process to, to register. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of insight there, Roger. Listeners may be surprised to discover um, that voter turnout, even inside leadership elections, isn't 100%, um, that there is some leakage. Um, and so, you know, in that context, one can't help but think that the energy around the Polyev campaign um, probably makes his supporters more inclined to go through that process, as you say. I would just add one other point, because um, you know, I, I do think it is worth emphasizing um, the, the, the magnitude of, of the Polyev sales, you know, subject to learning more about the actual numbers. There's reason to believe, based on the polling that we have, that he was leading um, amongst pre-existing members um, before a single membership was sold in this campaign. And so it seems to me the impetus for Brown and Sheree and others um, was that they needed to have massive membership sales if they were to account for or offset Polyev's pre-existing levels of support. So the fact that it seems likely that Polyev has also sold the most memberships during this campaign, you know, can't it can't help but lead to the kind of conclusion that all things being equal, he's in the driver's seat here. And when you add the level of energy that we are talking about and the likelihood that it will produce higher voter turnout, you know, I have to say, guys, in the absence of something extraordinary happening between now and September 10th, I think the net of all of this is that um, Polyev has to be seen as a, a serious front runner um, and, and, and the membership sales will only reinforce that. I just add, Sean, I agree completely with that. I just want to add a few more things that are headwinds against the other campaigns here, because, you know, the massive amount of uh, members signed up means the party has to go through all these. That creates a shorter window for voting to happen in, and uh, that creates a shorter window of persuasion from the existing list. If you're John Charest, you probably want to get some of those Polyev signups to vote for you, if you have any hope. And then the second thing is, these numbers are public now, and I, if the poly of energy is one side of the coin, the other side of that coin is if you're a Sheree voter, 
the air is out of the balloon now with him tweeting we've got it's one of those tweets where you go, I don't know about this one, guys. Um, but they were saying we've got literally tens of thousands of voters uh, signed up now. So I, I think if you are maybe a brown person, you're feeling like there's a chance. And if you're a Shrey person, I, I can't imagine what you're thinking right now with those numbers. Let me bring up, uh, let me take up the question of the Patrick Brown candidacy and put it to, to, to Rudyard. Um, it's, we're speaking on the morning of June 6th. We've spoken on previous episodes about the lack of scrutiny on um, the efforts of the Brown campaign to not just sell memberships, but build a coalition comprised of of a kind of micro-targeting strategy with different ethno-cultural communities. This morning, there was a great piece in the National Post by Catherine Levesque, which, from what I can tell, is one of the first cases where we were given real insight into uh, the machinations of that micro-targeting strategy. In this case, it's with the Chinese Canadian community. Uh, And according to this reporting, Brown has done some events with groups that are um, known to be close to Beijing. He's uh, lauded a particular Canadian senator who's been censured actually for his coziness to the Chinese regime. You know, Rudyard, I guess I'd just be interested in your thoughts not just about the number of, of memberships that Brown has sold, um, but I think the kind of growing questions and scrutiny about how he's gone about selling them and what it says about um, you know, his commitment to uh, conservative principles and even to the kind of Canadian national interests. So is there a reason or justification, I think, for conservative members to be asking tough questions mm-hmm. of Patrick Brown and his campaign? Yeah, I, I think you have to be a little bit careful about this because the reality is that all parties do this um, of all political stripes and persuasions. Um, you know, the old saw is that there is no foreign policy, there's only domestic policy. And that's true, not just in Canada, but you could argue, you know, in the United States. Um, so Brown is taking this to effectively to the form of a high art. And um, I don't. I, I do agree with you, Sean. I think it's a vulnerability in the campaign because I wonder just even in terms of the leadership rules that we're talking about, the complexities of voting, to what extent is this an audience that is really that efficiently distributed across the country? And to what extent, I mean, maybe there is a, a, a high level of uh, attention and uh, dedication on the part of these different voting blocks, you know, to go through the, the cumbersome voting process. But these are not people that I think have much in the way I would expect of a kind of longstanding affinity to the conservative movement and conservative ideas. Um, so it is an odd approach. I mean, I, I think maybe you could say in his defense, you know, you work with what you got. Um, and and his strengths are just that, his, his strengths as an organizer and his strengths with these different diaspora communities. But I agree with you. I think it, it opens up certainly a line of political attack. I think if you get more of these types of reports coming out, um, you know, alleging, uh, you know, footsie with different um, ethnocultural groups that may, again, as many are, be attached back to regimes and countries whose interests in the case of China are not particularly aligned with those of Canada, then yes, it raises those bigger questions. Um, Stuart, let's just wrap up this segment by talking a little bit about Charest because I think it's worth, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, his, his kind of tweets about tens of thousands being somewhat vague on the membership numbers. 
What do you think happens here? I mean, his campaign has always floated this idea that there could be, um, and in fact, Pierre Polyev called it the, what was it, the little coalition or the small coalition or something in one of the de debates of a, a charade brown, you know, uh, phalanx to kind of block uh, a Polyev steamroller. Um, is that possible if you look at these numbers, if you think about how this could break out, or is that just now um, faint hope against the very large and impressive tally that Pierre Polyev has put up on the scoreboard? Yeah, I think we're in the faint hope stage of this race. And um, the other thing about the Charest situation right now is that the the way that his um, his only hope of victory works is if he finishes second um, to Polyev, or he finishes maybe not second, but if he finishes ahead of Brown on the first ballot, and then the Brown votes would go to Charest. Um, you know, there's been a lot of accusations from the Polyev camp about the Brown membership signups. So who knows where those numbers end up shaking out. But the way that it's looking right now is that it's Polyev, Brown. Lewis is an interesting one because, you know, even though her raw numbers might not be huge, she will have a very energetic, active um, group of voters who know how to do this and they know how to get their ballots in. And you will probably see less of a burn rate on her voters. Um, but for Sheree, um, I think his only hope now is that something goes awry with the Patrick Brown campaign in tandem with something going awry with the Polyev situation. So um, I think we're in a spot now where, you know, serious observers are watching to see if he stays in the race until the end. Um, so that's something we'll be watching for. I, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, the fact that in the aftermath of um, the membership deadline, uh, Mr. Shrey and his team had to emphasize that he intended to stay in the race and see this through is, is not a good sign. The one thing I will mention though, um, Rudyard and Stewart, that I think is interesting is, in previous leadership campaigns, there's, you know, by and large, the candidates that have lost have run under the banner of the eventual winner. I think of, um, I think of the, in Andrew Shear's case, for instance, virtually every candidate who ran against him ultimately ran as a conservative candidate in the next election, even in the recent Ontario election, a leadership race where Doug Ford was ultimately crowned the winner you had in Christine Elliott and Caroline Mulroney, for instance, people who ultimately ran and, and um, served in his cabinet. I think it's interesting to think, Patrick Brown has already said that if Polyev wins, he won't stand as a conservative candidate. I think it's very, very unlikely uh, that Jean Charest would do the same. So um, it's an interesting dynamic here where um, the outcome isn't just about choosing the leader. It, it, in some ways it speaks to something more fundamental about the kind of direction and ethos of the party and the fact that Brown has already said he won't run and Shrey is likely um, not to run either signals that um, you know, Polyev's leadership, should he win, will be um, pr pretty strong and he'll be in a position to really kind of impose his uh, will and perspective um, on the party. Thanks guys. Uh, when we come back to this break, we're gonna talk Bank of Canada. I'm going to pick up on a theme, uh, obviously, that the Polyev campaign has made a big deal out of. And we're going to reflect on these huge uh, inflation numbers out of uh, the United States uh, today, Friday, how that plays over to us here in Canada, pondering mortgage payments, credit card debt, car loans, you name it. The Bank of Canada was out yesterday with its 
kind of report on systemic risks. And hey, guess what? Housing right up there. The BOC is one of the most important systemic risks now facing the Canadian economy. So we're going to dig into that with you right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button, Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hello, Hub subscribers. Rebier Griffiths here, your executive director. You're tuning into our regular Friday podcast where we dig into big issues and ideas in the news with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-at-chief. Guys, I want to spend the back half of the show uh, talking about, I think, what's on everybody's minds, which is uh, surging inflation. And you know what we like to do at The Hub is try to look at things through the lens of policy. And the big institution that has the policy mandate to deal with inflation is the Bank of Canada. We've seen the Bank of Canada be part of the political conversation, certainly in this recent conservative leadership race, in a way that few of us uh, have witnessed in a, a long period of time. And I want to get a sense uh, from you guys about, you know, what we heard this week from the Bank of Canada. They come out with these regular reports on financial risks to the system. And hey, guess what? Um, housing right up there as one of the top systemic financial risks uh, to the Canadian economy. Stuart, um, What's your take on this? I know you've got, uh, maybe you could share anonymously some, you know, some stories about what you're hearing in Ottawa and the suburbs of Ottawa about people's anxieties around, uh, you know, do they, do they take advantage now of locking in what's left of lower rates to grab a house? Are people standing off? Uh, I'd love just a little feel of texture from your community of how people are facing this extraordinary moment. Yeah, it is. It's such an interesting one because I think maybe the sort of the prevailing idea on this is that first time buyers are the ones who are really affected by this. You know, I have friends who, you know, they're coming out of university and they just feel like they could never afford to buy a house. But there's another interesting group of people, which is the people who are in that sort of middle range home, they're in their first home and they always kind of assume they'd be there for a couple of years and then they would go to the bigger house for the family, get the backyard, get the detached home. Um, that, I mean, that's where I am right now, um, kind of looking for that next step. And I will say that there's a similar kind of, I don't want to say despair, because that's, I think, too strong of a word, but there's a similar kind of feeling that maybe this is getting out of reach. Maybe uh, even though the value of my, my house is rising, the more expensive one that I want to buy is also rising. And you know, because it's the same percentage, proportionally, that house is getting more out of reach for me. Uh, and then there's also that feeling of, am I going to be the greater fool if I buy right now? And I, I think that's probably the feeling that we're seeing right now um, is uncertainty. Some people are kind of making some last ditch moves to, you know, get that house or lock in a rate. And I, I, I think right now, 
there's so many things, there's so many little indicators going on that leak into everyday life that are showing us the economy is not on a good footing, that this is a prevailing sentiment now. Uh, and I think that starts to become a political problem as well as an economic one. Sean, I want to come to you because, you know, this, I urge our, you know, our, our listeners, hub readers to, you know, check out the, this press conference that Tiff Mecklen and the Bank of Canada gave on Thursday regarding uh, systemic risk, because it, it's one of those moments where I had a feeling, Sean, like, finally, the truth was slipping through. And I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but there's just a side of me that worries, Sean, as we know, we care about institutions at the hub. And it worries me that, you know, we are now into what could be a really painful fight against inflation. If you look at the US, you know, CPI numbers that came in uh, above forecast on, on Friday. And, and what does the Bank of Canada do? You know, it, it, it has hectored and warned us about taking on too much debt for over a decade. You can go all the way back to Mark Carney to dig up those speeches. Yet at the same time, it pursued an ultra low interest rate policy. And Tiff Mecklen went so far as during the pandemic, early on the pandemic, to say to Canadians, uh, potential home buyers, businesses, guess what? Rates will remain low for a very, very long time. Now, less than 24 months later, he's out in a complete flip-flop, saying in effect that rates are going higher and that, I mean, I love this quote, it's kind of speaking truth to power, I guess, that monetary policy is not housing policy. Like, duh. But Sean, isn't that exactly what the Bank of Canada has done for the last decade or more? Monetary policy has been housing policy. Housing makes up an ever greater portion of our GDP. It is systemic. And it's systemic because the Bank of Canada has made policy decisions about rates and the monetary framework that the country would unfold in. I don't know. I just, I worry, Sean, that we're, we're seeing this kind of, uh, this institutional decay in Ottawa. Uh, you know, we can't get a payroll system to work. We can't procure defense equipment. You know, maybe why should we be surprised that the Bank of Canada doesn't really know what it's doing? It's sticking its finger in the wind. It's flip-flopping. And does the institutional rot, unfortunately, extend beyond Parliament, beyond, you know, the mainline bureaucracies that we've come to, unfortunately, expect too much of it to be in, to, in fact, find that same rot in some of our most valued and important and independent institutions like the Bank of Canada. Sorry, that's my rant, but I, <laughs> I'm just, I, I was just flabbergasted by this press conference. Yeah, let me say two things in response to that. The, the first is, you know, one gets the sense that we, as, an, as a species, um, you know, need to kind of relearn the lessons of the past, right? Um, you know, the comment that monetary policy needs to be focused on inflation, not all of these secondary issues like housing or climate change or gender equality or whatever, uh, would have been self-evident to Peter, people like Paul Volcker or, or Milton Friedman or others who had to break the back of inflation last time um, that we forgot those lessons. And it seems like now, finally, uh, when the U.S. is at 8.6% inflation and Canada is not that far behind, our political class, our bureaucratic class is finally learning those lessons that um, uh, we need to be focused like a laser on inflation because the cost of inflation is is so painful. It's regrettable that it's taken this long, but as you say, I suppose um, 
it's inevitable that um, we'll continue to have to forget and relearn these lessons over and over and over again. The second thing I will say, you talked about the extent to which this is a reflection of something of institutional rot. I, you know, one of the takeaways for me from this report on systemic risks, which um, amongst other things um, showed that housing assets have risen by 50% in the past two years alone. Doesn't it say something about the state of our economy, Rudyard, um, that um, capital is naturally flowing to those assets um, where returns are the highest, and the fact that it's occurring in housing and not other parts of the economy, isn't that an indictment in a way of uh, the lack of innovation and productivity occurring across the Canadian economy? In places like the United States, for instance, capital flows into Silicon Valley and into technology and so on. In Canada, because so much of our economy is um, protected from competition and you know, effectively functions like a ward of the state in the form of subsidies and regulations and so on, um, that our capital flows to housing um, um, because that's where the most returns are. So I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, it seems to me a, a, a big part of the problem reflected in this report and something that we've been championing at the hub for a long time is our economy needs to get more competitive, more innovative, more productive um, so that capital fl is flowing into um, those productive mm -hmm. parts of the economy not into housing. Yeah, Sean, and we need to do you know hard things like figure out how to bring more productive productivity out of manufacturing. You know how to um, you know create a value add in our extractive industries. Instead, you know I was shocked in this report. Again, it just I don't know. It kind of shakes my confidence. You know, this systemic financial report comes out and and has this data point that twenty five percent of all mortgage holders have a loan to income ratio above 450%. And this is a record high. It's never been this high in Canada. So, you know, how do we get here? Like, where was the Bank of Canada and also OSFI, you know, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions? You know, HELOC debt, uh, people taking money out of their houses in the, in the form of, of, of additional loans has increased by 30% over the last pandemic to three quarters of a trillion dollars. Like, I just, I just wonder, guys, like, if you're sitting there at the commanding heights of the economy, the Bank of Canada, OSFI, the Ministry of Finance, for the last decade, even before the pandemic, why was any of this good? Why was it wise to put all of our eggs in this housing basket? To, to blow up that basket by allowing massive levels of debt accumulation. I just worry, Stuart, that, you know, this is another example, like it could be another very painful example of elite failure. And boy, we've had a lot of elite failure lately. Um, you know, to what extent, Stuart, do you think that there's political traction here as people's mortgage rates soar as interest rate hikes have to be more aggressive because frankly, the very reason that we've had an incredibly lax attitude on the part of the people that should have been watching out for this stuff, the Bank of Canada, OSFI, the Ministry of Finance, this is gonna hurt a lot of families. It's gonna hurt a lot of businesses. A lot of people are gonna lose their houses. You know, boy, uh, maybe Pierre Polyev was ahead of the curve, um, even though he's been heavily criticized for his attacks on the Bank of Canada, but. 
you have to wonder if they're not just starting to paint a giant target on themselves. Yeah, I think that is probably the, the big question right now is we're going to really take the measure of the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau in particular, because, you know, inflation is one of those problems that any of the solutions aren't really all that appealing to people uh, who are progressive. Like, it's just not the kind of stuff you got into government to do. Um, so I we've had this chatter about whether Trudeau will stay in his job, whether he wants to just get a few final things done and then um, leave the job to somebody else. Maybe all this kind of gives you a clue as to why they're scheming to get a banker in the job at this point. Um, maybe they kind of see this coming. Um, but I, I, I think probably the, the biggest thing here right now is that there is an opportunity here for the Conservative Party, because if you look at the economic situation, um, parties don't tend to last when things get like that. Um, leaders don't tend to last when things get like that. And um, if if you kind of take a step back and look at Polyev and all the issues that he's been highlighting, um, the energy that he's been capturing, I don't think it's crazy to think that that could spread across, you know, we call them moderate voters. I don't think that's a great phrase, but people who would be willing to swing to the party. Um, this is exactly the thing people are going to be talking about. And he will have the benefit. This isn't just his leadership campaign. You know, I've covered finance committee before and Polyev has been on this stuff for a long time. He really knows it and he knows how it works politically. So, you know, there really is an opportunity here for the conservative party. Let me just pick up Rudyard's point though about elite failure, because I think it's, I think it's really important. Uh, you know, we're living in a populist moment. Listeners know that. Um, and there's been a tendency on the part of a lot of elite commentators and political actors to basically dismiss the populists as Neanderthals or, or worse. Um, but the truth is, you know, for the past decade or longer, there's been a series of pretty spectacular elite failures, you know, from China's ascension into the World Trade Organization to the handling of the pandemic and you know, you can add the global financial crisis and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan to that list. Um, and if we have a, manu a manufactured recession in the next, you know, 12 or 24 months, which seems increasingly likely, um, that because central banks around the world failed their primary task of controlling inflation are, and are now forced to use the hammer of higher and higher interest rates to bring us into a recession in, in an effect quell inflation. Uh, guys, like, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, um, but remember the yellow vest protest movement in France? You know, one can see a scenario where that manifests itself in advanced economies around the world. Um, this is really serious stuff. If you care about institutions like we do, um, and, uh, you know, it seems to me uh, we're on the precipice of um, uh, just a massive threat, not just in Canada, uh, but around the world, I don't, Rudyard. What, what, what's your sense of of um, of what that threat represents and what what it could mean um, for political stability and social cohesion? Yeah, but the other thing to understand is that the people that are hurt hardest by inflation are the very people that you know didn't benefit from this massive run up in asset prices fueled by those very same low rates. So they lost coming into this crisis the last decade and. You know, I think there's some hope that we can resolve inflation quickly in a matter of a few quarters. I, I genuinely worry about that. Um, I think, you know, this 
war in Ukraine may well come to an end or a stalemate, but Russia and all of its energy and commodities will be locked out of Western markets for the foreseeable future. You know, COVID is not going away. Shanghai is going back into lockdown this weekend. So there are big structural factors out there that are going to limit supply. And what we're seeing is a supply-constrained world where demand has to be brought into line with supply to stop inflation. Well, the way you do that, if you can't increase supply, is you gotta, you got to squelch demand. you got to do that through consistently higher interest rates. So I always want to be careful about you know, not thinking about the world in the way that I want it to be. But there could be a silver lining, guys, in all of this, which is that we're coming out of a, maybe a decade or more of an economic experiment, which basically saw central banks facilitate really unrealistic and at times unconstrained spending by governments, by financing that spending directly, by purchasing government bonds and taking them onto the balance sheets of central banks, by using the power of central banks in terms of their, their influence over markets to inflate all kinds of different assets to create the appearance of wealth and prosperity, but it's paper wealth that's now being destroyed in the current you know, stock market sell-off. So maybe guys, if you want to be hopeful about this, maybe coming out the other end, there's a return to reality. There are, there are economies that suddenly have to start making real choices. And faced with real choices, i.e. you can't ginny up growth by simply um, blowing out the balance sheet of your central bank and endangering, you know, the status of your currency as a store of value, then you have to kind of go back to the boring but necessary work of growing productivity, of growing wealth through innovation, through through all the policy changes that we write about, you know, weekly, uh, daily at the hub. So I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that the bond vigilantes coming back. You know, however they're manifesting themselves, whether it's just the central bank's hand being forced or in the case of Canada, this violent sell-off you can see in long-duration Canadian debt, you know, reality bites, but reality also forces, you know, choices. And maybe this is an opportunity to get off this debt-fueled high that has just created a, a fantasy land, a toy country in Canada that has little bearing on the realities that it faces and the challenges that it must meet. Well, it almost seems like a good place to stop where Rudyard is the glass is half full voice today. <laughs> um, the only thing I would say is often Rudyard coming off a high tends to involve a, a, a pretty painful ex and excruciating experience of withdrawals. So while I agree that there's reason to think that we'll come out on the other side um, with a, a greater intentionality and discipline. Um, that transition is going to be pretty painful. And I worry about um, the kind of political ramifications, just given what we're seeing around the world. I mean, we're having this conversation a day after um, the uh, mm -hmm. congressional hearing last night where they um, yeah, the president of the United States basically said, yeah, they should hang the vice president. I mean, this is shocking stuff. Shocking. So, uh, you know, I, I just think um, what I would like to see is 
from Tiff Macklem and Christia Freeland and, and others, um, a kind of reckoning like we've seen from Janet Yellen, uh, Janet Yellen and some of the voices yeah. in the United States. I think that's ultimately the best way to kind of head off um, the spike in populism um, that may be precipitated by this um, set of, of political economy developments. Yeah, and, and my final point, like, let's just hope that they have, that Tiff Macklin and others have the intestinal fortitude to do what they need to do, because this is going to be extremely painful. Again, people are going to lose jobs, houses. Um, there, will be, uh, there will be carnage as rates are, are rapidly increased on a highly debt-addled, debt-ridden society that is Canada. And the lobbies... The real estate lobby, um, the small business lobby, everyone is going to be there screaming about this regime change. And I, I worry, Sean, I worry that there's a potential here that would be the ultimate elite failure for them to blink, for them to not follow through the mandate, to allow, to try to have their cake and eat it too, to try to say, well, you know, we'll, we'll target inflation at you know, 3%. You know, that'll be our new target. Well, that ends up being four, it goes back up to five, you know, and then you're truly looking for a Paul Volcker who has to step in and just, pardon the expression, but strangle the baby in the crib. And we don't want to go there, but it is going to cause an incredible amount of distress in this country. And these institutions, which I think are weak, partly because of populism, but partly because of their own systemic elite failures, they're going to have to again, show some courage here, show some toughness. We're talking about Ottawa. <laughs> I don't know if those two words go together, Stuart. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> it's one of those things that the pandemic, you don't want to get too bleak about it, but there hasn't been a lot of even just, you know, the some of the incidents with the police officers in the US, this has been on my mind is, you know, the idea of duty and the idea of taking some bad consequences, whatever they are for doing the thing you agreed to do. Um, so that's how we can do it. Yeah, you're here. We are institutionalists at the hub. We are not about throwing, as Sean said, a grenade into the, you know, the cathedral of what past generations have built our shared patrimony. But boy, do we need our institutions now. Let's hope our leaders are up to do the task. Guys, that's a wrap this week. We will be back with you listeners next Friday for our regular Hub Roundtable. Have a terrific weekend. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.